You're listening to The Myth Pilgrim, and I am Brother Lawrence of the Missionaries of God's Love. At its heart, the spiritual journey is a delightful and perilous adventure, just like the myths and fairy tales we love. This podcast is also a journey, learning from both wizards and saints, enchanted princesses and inner demons. Together, we'll discover how the great symbols of myth and fairy tale can guide us on our journey to God. Hey friends, and welcome to episode 50 of The Myth Pilgrim. Woo! <laughs> You're all awesome. Thank you all once again for making doing The Myth Pilgrim so worthwhile, for joining me for such an epic adventure, even for me. <laughs> a special thanks and a nod to all of you who have been with me since episode 1. I know a few of you by name, but do let me know if I may not know who you are, and then I can send you a special hug in some special way. <laughs> How good is God? When I first started doing The Myth Pilgrim, I seriously thought I'd record like 10, maybe like 15 episodes or so, you know, and then retire, amen. But now we have like 50 episodes and a lot more on the way. What happened? Very loaves and fishes, right? Inspirations and episodes just keep multiplying and keep popping up out of nowhere. Maybe that's how grace works. Stay faithful to your yes and God will show you how we can never outdo him in generosity, amen. So anyway, festivities aside, for this episode, I've chosen to explore a real favourite of mine from the Disney Renaissance era, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, based on the 1831 novel by Victor Hugo. While Hunchback is typically fun and flamboyant and charming and theatrical for kids and all of that Disney stuff, it also stands out heads and shoulders above many other Disneys for being quite mature in its themes, daring to wrestle with ideas like hypocrisy, racism, hellfire, lust and shame. The explicitly religious tones of this story at once illuminate some scenes in heavenly light and in others, hellish darkness. As such, it is a masterpiece and a unique one at that, and definitely worth seeing no matter how old you are. The particular theme I felt called to hone in on today is that of shame. Something which by definition is incredibly difficult to talk about or even to think about. For shame, by its nature, likes to remain hidden from the world and even from ourselves. Shame is like Quasimodo in the story, locked up away from the world in the cathedral bell tower, but at the same time, crying out for attention. This is why the story today works so well, for not only does it paint a very good image of shame, but also offers us a model of a way out of it. Hmm. Let's begin, as usual, with a summary of the story. The film opens with a sort of prologue scene, narrating the origins of the Hunchback of Notre Dame himself. In Paris, 1482, a group of outlaw gypsies are travelling into the city by night, when they are ambushed by Judge Claude Frollo, Paris's Minister of Justice. One woman, attempting to flee with her baby, reaches the doors of Notre Dame Cathedral and pleads for sanctuary. Frollo chases her down and knocks her onto the cathedral steps, where she strikes her head and is tragically killed. Her baby survives, however, and Frollo, repulsed at its deformed appearance, makes to drown the child in a well. But the archbishop stops him in the nick of time and accuses Frollo of murdering an innocent woman. To atone for his sin, he must raise her child now as his own. Frollo hesitantly agrees to do this, but insists that the boy be raised in secret within the bell tower of the cathedral. 
He then cruelly names the boy Quasimodo, a name which means half-formed. Twenty years later, Quasimodo has grown into a kind yet isolated young man. He has lived his entire life inside the cathedral, with his only connection to the outside world being Minister Frollo himself, who actually treats him pretty badly like a personal slave. Ashamed of having his past murder revealed to the public, Frollo finds every reason to keep Quasimodo hidden inside the cathedral, saying to him, oh, he's ugly and deformed and the world would treat him terribly if they saw him, that only he, he, his generous foster father, was loving and caring in the world and, and other such lies. But uh, Quasimodo has three gargoyle friends, two of which are called Victor and Hugo, which is really funny because that's the name of the author of the original story. Anyway, uh, these gargoyles convince Quasi that life isn't a spectator sport and that he should try and attend the annual Festival of Fools down in the city square, albeit to do so in disguise. So Quasi does. He slips out and joins the outside world for the first time in song and dance and other normal life. When his disguise is eventually busted, however, the mob, they begin to jeer at him and start throwing rotten food at him and, and they bind him up like an animal and spin him around and around as an object of ridicule in the public square. Eventually, it is only the young gypsy, Esmeralda, who takes pity on Quasimodo and defying Judge Frollo's orders for her to stay put, she alone gets up onto the stage and she cuts the young man free. She then avoids capture from Frollo's guards herself through a magic trick. And Frollo, from that moment onwards, becomes somewhat obsessed with tracking Esmeralda down, and not just for justice reasons. Meanwhile, Quasimodo retreats back into the cathedral, followed by Esmeralda and Captain Phoebus, chief of Frollo's guard. Esmeralda bumps into Quasimodo again inside Notre Dame, who then leads her up to his attic, where she discovers he is an artistic genius. They then have a beautiful conversation on the rooftops under the starlight, one which begins to undo the knot of lies that Frollo had fed onto Quasimodo about him being an ugly, unlovable monster, and so on and so forth. Quasi then helps Esmeralda escape Notre Dame out of gratitude, but just before she leaves, she entrusts Quasi with a map to the gypsy's hideout in the city, called the Court of Miracles. Naturally, Quasi begins to develop feelings for Esmeralda. As it turns out, Minister Frollo has also developed feelings for Esmeralda, a fiery, obsessive lust. And after wrestling with God and conscience in the epic song called Hellfire, he resolves that unless she gives herself over to him, he would burn her at the stake. <laughs> Go Disney. When he later discovers that Esmeralda had escaped from Notre Dame, he begins a ruthless search for her in the city, bribing and arresting gypsies and setting fire to entire streets in order to find her. Captain Phoebus himself defies the mad judge, but is struck by an arrow and falls into the River Seine, where he is rescued by Esmeralda and taken again to Notre Dame for refuge. There, Quasi is saddened to discover the truth that she and Phoebus had already fallen in love. Fast forward some details and Frollo finds out through an unwitting Quasi where the Court of Miracles is. He launches a surprise attack with his men, finally capturing Esmeralda in the process, who of course resists his advances. So he sentences her to be burned at the stake in the town square the next day. In the nick of time, however, she is rescued by Quasimodo, who takes her inside the safety of the cathedral once more. Captain Phoebus releases the other captured gypsies and rallies the, the Paris citizens, Parisian citizens, <laughs> against Frollo's guards, while Frollo himself breaks into the cathedral, 
he and Quasi have a final showdown on the cathedral rooftops. They eventually both fall from a parapet. Frollo falls to his death, clutching a gargoyle's head, while the fallen Quasimodo is caught by Captain Phoebus in the nick of time. With the city's chief threat and deceiver gone, Quasi is finally free from his clutches. In a beautiful gesture of goodwill, he accepts and blesses Captain Phoebus and Esmeralda's love, who both then lead Quasi out of the cathedral and into the public light. The people of Paris are finally able to see past Frollo's monstrous bell ringer veneer, and they celebrate him as a fellow man and hero. You know, as I mentioned before, one of the reasons that shame is so hard to speak about is precisely because we are actually ashamed of our shame. Like a cockroach that shuns the light, shame likes to remain hidden and flees the light of truth as long as it can. If I were to gently probe into what shame feels like in your life, I bet there's a sort of shrinking, suffocating feeling, right? Yet, without us acknowledging the shame in our life, it can completely drive and dominate our lives and grossly limit what's possible for us, as it did for Quasi at the start of the film. But let me posit this up front. Shame can be even more destructive than something that cripples us. Look only at the example of Minister Frollo, who, compared to poor Quasi, is actually a far more monstrous image of shame, or more accurately, shame aversion. It is Frollo's suppression of his sexual fantasies and his own murderous past that ultimately jeopardises Quasimodo's dignity, Esmeralda's safety, the well-being of all the gypsies, and eventually the safety of the entire city of Paris. Unrecognised shame is toxic for our psyche, and Carl Jung calls it the swampland of the soul, and in another place, a soul-eating emotion. And worse, if it remains unchecked, it can then project its sorry state onto others within its reach, just as it did with the people surrounding Frollo. As the old maxim goes, we are only as sick as the secrets we keep. That's the bad news. What's the good news? Well, God certainly does not want us to live paralysed by such shame and humiliation. It is the complete opposite he wants, freedom, joy and flourishing as children of the Father. But you may be asking, isn't it right that we're ashamed of some things in our life? Like, how could God just be satisfied with all the baggage and sins and habits that I'm so deeply ashamed about? A good question. Glad you asked. It is here that it is important to differentiate between guilt and shame. In the spiritual life, guilt is generally healthy, whereas shame is never healthy. Guilt says, I have done something bad. Shame says, I am bad. This is classic Brene Brown here, by the way, for those of you who don't know her work on shame. If I were to use a simple example to illustrate this difference between guilt and shame, if you were to do really badly on, say, an end-of-year exam, a couple of voices could whisper to you. Shame would say, you are terrible, you're a no-good loser, you're a failure. (laughs) Whereas guilt would say, okay, I should have studied more and not gone out on the weekend. Can you see the difference? The voice of guilt recognises the sin and makes resolutions to amend it, whereas the voice of shame just condemns you as a person right then and right there. Here we can recognise that the voice of shame is always from the enemy, the bad spirit, and never from God. And yet, 
Shame is the voice that so many of us listen to, as poor Quasimodo did. Shame is certainly the voice of Frollo to Quasimodo, where he says, You are deformed. I am deformed. And you are ugly. And I am ugly. And these are crimes for which the world shows little pity. You do not comprehend. You are my one defender. Out there they'll revile you as a monster. I am a monster. Out there they will hate and scorn and jeer. Only a monster. See how the focus of Frollo isn't on what Quasi's done, but on him being a defect, his person being a defect. That's shame one-on-one right there. So given such knowledge, how do we break out of shame's sinister hold? The biblical model would seem to suggest the following. To have the courage to step out of the place of shame, and then to have it met by the one who identifies with that shame. This was the model for the Zacchaeuses, Mary Magdalene's, the woman caught in adultery, blind Bartimaeus, the hemorrhaging woman, and many others who were deeply shamed in Jesus' time. Let's illustrate this now with a key scene in Hunchback. You'll remember that it was the three gargoyles that first encouraged Quasi to leave the cathedral and to attend the Festival of Fools. While they planted the seed in him, it was ultimately up to Quasimodo to choose to take the step out, to refuse to live in the shadows any longer. To do this, he had to learn first to ignore the voice of his master Frollo, who in this scene plays the part of the bad spirit. If sinister voices like this dominate your heart, you are deformed. I am deformed. And you are ugly. And I am ugly. Do a Quasimodo and ignore them. Rebel against them, for those voices are not of God, but instead are of the enemy. Rather, listen to the good spirit, and this is where Quasimodo's other song called Out There is actually about. Sort of like a prepping up for and a big step out of shame. The song speaks of the discontent Quasi feels about being isolated from the millers and weavers and their wives down below, and how much he longed to be a part of them. If another of Brene Brown's maxims are true, where she says that shame makes us feel unworthy of connection, then this song is pretty much an anthem against shame, one which celebrates the possibility of connection. What might stepping out of shame look like for you? For some, it could mean confiding in a trusted friend your struggle with shame or having the courage to seek professional help about it. It could mean refusing to speak to ourselves in language you wouldn't use to speak with anyone else. It could mean acknowledging before God that you've hidden away from Him like Adam and Eve in the bushes for far too long, saying to Him, My Lord God, I've had enough. This is not how you've designed me to live. Or it could just mean taking a deep breath, rolling out of bed, stepping out of the room and stepping out of the house. Whatever it is, if you start with the smallest step in treating yourself like you are worthy of love, I have found that people and God have an uncanny way of blessing you that way too. Try it out. Now at this point you might go, well that sounds good in principle Lawrence, but things don't end too well for Quasimodo does it when he steps out? Sure, he felt good at the Festival of Fools for a while, but then he gets mocked and ridiculed in public and his worst nightmare comes true. What do you make of that? Well, while I never wish anything so cruel to happen to any of us, the far more important truth is that because Quasimodo stepped out, he was met with the compassionate eyes of Esmeralda. And when he does, 
the mocking of even the entire world simply faded away. For there, as Quasi lies helplessly tied up, bound and in the dark of his shame, Esmeralda comes to him like a shaft of heavenly light. In that moment, as she alone approaches him on the stage, it's literally as if time stops, and all that exists is Esmeralda and Quasimodo, the god figure and his terrified child. For in this scene, Esmeralda does in fact very much play the role of Jesus, for it is she alone who sees Quasi and has mercy upon him. For even the world's jeering cannot shame us anymore once we know that we are truly seen and loved by God. And for the rest of the movie, it is Esmeralda who would continue to see Quasimodo for who he really was, to celebrate his beautiful and loyal and brave heart and to teach him that he was, in fact, worthy of connection. She inspires him to discover the character he never knew he had, and by the end of the movie, it is her that ultimately leads him by the hand out of his cathedral cell and into the light of freedom. Whatever role Esmeralda played for Quasimodo, Jesus can play for us. The Esmeralda approaching Quasimodo scene is not merely a fairy tale or some Disney wishful thinking. For while we know that God is love and that God loves everyone equally, we also know that divine love is particularly drawn to the rejected and the outcast. This remains true both whether we are publicly rejected or if we internally reject ourselves. If we want to encounter God, look in the place you find most loathsome, the place you are most ashamed of. For there he is, as he was 2,000 years ago, as one who understands and knows shame and rejection. It is fitting that in the soundtrack leading up to that encounter scene that the choir cries out in Latin, Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, Lamb of God grant us peace. For Esmeralda is very much a Lamb of God figure, the sacrificial victim who knows what it is like to be an outcast and to be rejected. For that was what being a gypsy was in those days. As Esmeralda herself explains to Judge Frollo, her compassion for Quasi comes from the fact that her own people were mistreated by him in the same way. Esmeralda isn't the first person to sing that beautiful hymn, God Help the Outcasts, for Jesus might well have sang it first, 2,000 years ago, every time he met an outcast in the Gospel stories. So, next time you feel like Quasi, bound up and crippled by shame, Picture our Lord coming to you in the same way that Esmeralda did, for it is something I continue to revisit and draw strength from, even today. If you're enjoying this episode of The Myth Pilgrim, please subscribe to it so you can stay up to date with all the latest episodes. If you'd like to be notified by email every time a new episode is released, hop onto the website at themythpilgrim.com to register. You know, one of the most powerful ways to tangibly experience the compassion of God in the midst of your shame is through a very simple prayer exercise. In it, you role-play the part of both God and the shame-bound person within you. 
I find it most helpful to think of this person as a child, because nine times out of ten he actually feels small and timid and probably hidden away, neglected, malnourished maybe, and shivering alone in fright. In the role of a loving parent, then, gaze at this child, this personification of shame. What would he or she look like? In my own experience, I've often pictured the ashamed little me carrying an enormous heavy sack or bound up in chains in a corner somewhere. Other times, he's inside a glass prison, screaming and banging, but no one pays any attention to him. Whatever your image is, spend time to look at him, gaze at him. I bet when you see that poor chap, your heart won't be filled with anger and judgment and disgust, aka the usual response to having our shame exposed, but rather be filled instead with compassion and warmth and tenderness. Treasure these feelings because they reflect the reality of what God would be feeling towards us in our shame. In a likewise way, speak to the little you and notice again what words you'd say and even what he'll say back. Have a conversation with him because again you'll find that what you end up saying to him won't be very different from what God would be saying to you when we're caught up in shame. What you'll find is this prayer exercise isn't just a mere exercise, but a truly powerful encounter with God's compassion. Hmm. Never underestimate the imagination as a place of divine encounter, St. Ignatius advises us. Because this exercise can allow such powerful moments of healing, I'd advise to not rush it or to do it while you're driving or distracted or something. Instead, put some time and space aside, maybe have a cuppa handy or maybe even journal if you'd like to record down your experiences afterwards. It's up to you. Uh, so this is definitely a practical program exercise I recommend for you. And something else, if you found this, this uh, episode helpful, is to go back and listen to episode 9 of The Myth Pilgrim, where Father Dave Tremble and I break open the story of the ugly duckling and how the story is a remedy for shame as well. So there's another juicy resource for you. Okay, I think it's time to wrap up for this 50th episode. Thank you again for journeying with me. And until next time, journey forth, take care, and God bless.